You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Earn and Invest podcast, where we have the conversations that help you earn and invest in the future so you can make the right decisions today. I'm your host, Doc G, and on this episode, a panel from Camp Mustache 2021 recorded live, where we introduce you to a bunch of real estate rock stars. Real estate investing is a wonderful tool, but the key to financial independence or any other worthwhile financial goal has nothing to do with real estate. So says Chad Coach Carson in a July 2020 blog post on Bigger Pockets, a real estate investing platform which offers content, tools, and a community of over 2 million members to help people avoid mistakes, learn valuable tips, find partners, deals, and financing, and make the best investing decisions possible. Chad goes on to say, instead, the basics of building wealth, whether that's with real estate, stock investing, or starting a business, has three basic concepts. One, save money. Two, invest the money wisely. And three, harvest your wealth so that you can live off your investments. While it's fun to talk about investing, and occasionally you'll see content on harvesting and living off your investments, learning how to save money, which isn't that sexy, is the first step and the key to achieving success with real estate or any other wealth-building path that you take. Search any financial independence forum, blog, or podcast, however, and you'll see that real estate is a hot topic that garners quite a bit of attention. But should it? This year at Camp Mustache, a yearly retreat dedicated to the teachings of Pete Aidney, a.k.a. Mr. Money Mustache, I was privileged to lead a panel discussion involving a group of real estate rock stars and tease out the role it plays in their financial independence journeys. Cavell Taylor is a commercial and residential real estate investor with a portfolio currently valued at almost $10 million. She also manages commercial and medical office buildings for a New Jersey-based developer. Santana Perez is a real estate investor in her early 30s, pivoting from a career in energy trading and corporate finance. After growing up in the foster care system and spending 21 years in poverty, Santana discovered FIRE in 2018. Since then, she has single-handedly built a million-dollar real estate portfolio of 10 doors while raising her son as a single parent. And finally, Ming Mercer began real estate investing in 2014 in her early 20s and then quit her W-2 job in 2020 when her real estate income surpassed her family's expenses with a portfolio of $2 million at age 29. I present to you the Real Estate Rockstar panel recorded live from Camp Mustache on Sunday, April 18th, 2021. Yo, what's up, everybody? This is Camp Mustache Virtual 2021. We are going to talk to a bunch of real estate experts about the real estate path to financial independence. 
But before we do, let me tell you, I grew up with this idea that you go to your nine to five, you work really hard, you make a lot of money. And then eventually I discovered financial independence. And I said, okay, you take that money, you put it into investments and it grows. And at some point you hit a number, your financial independence number, your net worth number. Some people say that's 25 times your yearly spending. I thought that was the way to get to financial independence. But we have a bunch of real estate rock stars here who are doing it a different way. Maybe a better way? We'll have to see. Without further ado, you've already heard who our real estate rock stars are. I want to start with a big question. We're going to get to the details soon. But the big question, Ming, is what do you love about real estate? For me, I like real estate, I think probably in two perspectives. One is from the money perspective, like what you do get a lot of more cash flow with a little bit down payment uh, compared to a traditional, like if you invest in index fund. And the second thing is it's something, it's real, right? Like instead of like an index fund, it's kind of hard to explain what it is and you can't really touch and feel it. A house is a house. I can drive up to it. I can touch it. I can feel it. I can tour inside of it. I can put up like a pictures and show off on my social media. I think these are the two things I really like about it. Cavell, is it a love affair with real estate? Do you love buying, selling, renting, dealing with properties? Absolutely. You know, when I first got started, I didn't I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And when I did my first deal is when I discovered that I just I love the process associated with hunting for the deal, underwriting the deal, shopping for the financing, negotiating the contract. Just the whole process associated with the acquisition. And then there's the stabilization piece, which, you know, I, I'm a buy and hold investor. I look for I look for opportunities where the buildings run down and you know, we renovate it and stabilize it, put new tenants in it. And that whole process itself, I just I love it. And, you know, the whole lease up and you know, taking a piece of junk and really implementing my vision when it comes to decorating it. And when I say decorating, I don't mean with internal fixtures. I mean, with the paint color and, you know, maybe putting a fireplace and the appliances and knocking down walls, et cetera, and then managing the property. I just love the A to Z process and it doesn't feel like I'm working. You know, the financial stuff is great too, but I just enjoy the process. Santana, Cavell mentioned the love of the deal. Was that part of why you like real estate? So I will be honest, it's sort of like a love-hate relationship sometimes. <laughs> but overall, I love real estate primarily because there's so many different strategies that you can employ. So I've been fortunate that I've done turnkey, distressed properties, flips, renovations, rehabs, commercial, mixed use, Airbnbs. VRBOs, long-term rentals. I've had experience doing all of those. And it's just been so phenomenal being able to pivot between different strategies. And like Ming said, it's something that you can actually see. And I call all of my real estate properties, my babies. So I'm like, here's this baby and that baby, (laughs) but I do love it. I love it. It's been a great venture for my family and hopefully something I can pass down to my son as well. So Ming, Santana says she calls her properties her babies. We know where babies come from, but where does the love of real estate come from? Tell us about your first deal. And did you know what you were doing? I don't believe anyone knows what they're doing when they first start real estate. You make mistakes, but I call those mistakes like, you know, the cost of it is just that you're a part of the tuitions, right? Like you learn that. 
I, I know I want to buy a house. I don't want to like I keep throwing my rent away. I didn't really think about I was going to build a real estate portfolio or anything like that. But I did have a sense of like, okay, I can't depend on my W-2s because when I entered the job market, the economy was still not stable at the time. I entered there, the senior person who referred me into the company got fired basically two months after I joined. So that was a shocking thing as a person who just entered the job market, right? So like I always had a sense, okay, I, I, I can't count on my W-2. I really need to build something on the side. I was walking down my neighborhood and I went into a open house. It was just a so random. Like we saw a big sign. We saw a bunch of cars. What's going on there? Let's go in check. And I started talking to the realtor and she was like, oh, like you just buy a house where you think the rent could be like 1% of the housing price. So that's the 1% rule. I That was the first time I heard about it. I was like, this is easy. I could start looking for it. And I started asking for a couple zip code. And I was like, oh, I want to see this house. Like, is there anything that you know on the market? And then she started to lead me to different deals, like start to look at different houses. And that was literally my first deal. And then that house, I hold it for about like six, seven years now. And I just sold it last week. And that itself, I invested about like a 30 grand and it turned out to be like a 150 grand within this couple of years, like where I hold it. And that's how you start. And once you start the first one, you're like, this is not that hard, right? And you start buying more and you start buying more. And the more you buy and then the more you actually learn throughout the process. So like go back to original opinion. Like, I don't think I know half of what I know currently when I bought my first two deals. And if I go back in time, those are definitely not the two houses that I would buy, but there it needs to be a starting point. Ming was talking about the 1% rule, this idea that if you are buying a rental property and let's say it's $100,000, you want to be able to at least collect $1,000 of rent. And that helps you decide if it's worthwhile on the rent you can collect. Cavell, I know you have an amazing story about your first property that you bought. Tell us about that. And also tell us about what resources you probably didn't have then that you could have used if you knew better. I'm going to go backwards and I, I'll say the resources I didn't have was the internet. I literally used a phone with the push button to get information. But my first deal, I was on Wall Street after I put myself through undergraduate and graduate school, got a really nice cushy job at Wall Street. But I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. And I was paying almost 40% in taxes. And I went to my boss and I was like, dude, what, what are we going to do? I got to do something about this. I need to make more money because to make up for the money that the tax man's taking from me. And my boss said, well, you either have to have kids or buy real estate. And I was like, well, I'm not having any kids. So one night, you know, I eventually got married. One night, my husband and I, we rented an apartment. It was a three-bedroom duplex. We had a roommate and we were drinking wine. And I was feeling pretty happy. And the roommate out of nowhere said, why don't you call Larry and ask him to sell you the building? That was the landlord. And I was like, he's not going to, he's not going to sell me. Watch. And I pick up the phone and I'm like, hey, Larry, why don't you sell me the building? And he said, yes. And I was like, oh, okay, bye, thank you. And he sent me the contract. I didn't even ask what price. I knew absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing. So I had to literally get on the phone because a friend of mine said, get a pamphlet from HSH Associates. It will tell you everything you need to know. I didn't even know what that meant, but I got the pamphlet. I read it. I learned about shopping for mortgages. Then, you know, the mortgage guy I started talking to started telling me like, you need to know what your DTI is. I'm like, what is that? bank said was, I'm only going to consider 75% of your rental income. And I'm like, to qualify you, I'm like, but I'm getting 100% of the money. Why, why would you? 
you know, and they say, oh, yeah, 25% for maintenance. And like you get all these little tidbits of information that will help you to put your numbers together. Then it was like asking around, like, who, 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 who else do I need on my team? You need a lawyer. Who should I call? You know, I call this one woman. We connected immediately. She was bright and aggressive, gave me a lot of information. So each step of the way, I learned a little bit more. I fell in love with the process and then I did it again and again. And it was just every single type, every time I did a deal, I was learning something that I didn't know before. And today I'm in the middle of a deal and I'm still learning things. I'm constantly asking questions. So that's one thing is like, never be afraid to ask a question. Even if you think it's stupid, it's, there's no such thing as a stupid question, but I knew nothing. And the tools that I wish I had then that I don't have, wait, the tools I have today that I wish I had then, I'm just going to recircle back was, you know, Google (laughs) and the internet. It just makes it so much easier. Every single question that you have, if you just get on the internet and search it, there's a lot of bad advice out there, but you will find it when you find out like who the movers and shakers are in the industry and you'll be able to parse out the information. Santana, tell us about that first deal that you did. Did you have any resources at hand? And if you didn't, how did you deal with this kind of imposter syndrome feeling like I have no idea what I'm doing? So I actually used uh, Bigger Pockets as a resource. And so what had happened is I had been listening to podcasts, kept hearing the 1% rule. And I was like, okay, let me do it. Uh, I've listened to podcasts now for about a month, two months. I had a finance background. And so it was a little bit easier. I did have a little bit of commercial real estate underwriting as well. And so what I did is I was originally looking in my market, which is Houston. And I was like, nothing works. It works but they're awful properties, God, awful properties that I just, I didn't want to deal with. And so what I did is I essentially was like, okay, well, let me look in certain areas that I have some familiar familiarity with. And so I expanded my um, search around two hours outside of Houston. And so I did end up finding this beautiful turnkey triplex that met the 1% rule. I remote managed it and it, it was my first deal and I'm actually selling that property now. So we'll get about Let's see how much they appreciate it. It's, so I bought it in late 2018. I'll end up making around 80000 give or take. But my ROI is much lower on that property than it would be in a different investment property. So I'm actually outlaying the gains into a larger property. So ROI is return of investment, if you're not familiar with that term. Ming, we've been talking about our first deals. Where does the money come from? I think as a novice, someone who doesn't do a lot of real estate dealings, the first thing we think about is, okay, we know you're not paying cash for everything. Where are you getting the money? For me personally, because I got my first property when I was really young, I just started entering the job market. And also like, just everyone know, like I actually was working in Cleveland, Ohio, which is extremely low cost. And in 2014, the housing price, you're talking about probably a piece could be like 100K, 80K. Even today, you can find like 100K properties over there. So the only money you need to collect for down payment, you're talking about like a 10 grand, 20 grand. It's really not that much. My first deal is part of the savings from college. So when my parents like gave me the spending money or like when I go for like all these summer internships, all these jobs, I try to like save as much as possible through the college years. Plus like the signing bonus I got for my first job. I didn't have one of those like attack jobs where they give you like 
tens, like a thousand psychograms of signing bonus. But to me, because I was in a low cost area, it was enough to buy one property to just collect enough down payment. And at that time, like I didn't have any kids and I live like pretty frugally. So like all the maintenance is literally like a paycheck to paycheck, trying to pay off like the maintenance of the renovation work, all that kind of stuff. So we've been getting tons of Slido questions. So Cavell, I'm going to jump to one right now. Jill asks us, what's the most useful tip you've learned about real estate investing that you can't learn from reading blogs and forums? The most useful tool that I've learned that you can't learn from reading, this is this is real now, is the different personality types that you come across and learning to leave your emotion out of it when you're dealing with a negative personality type. A negative personality type could, I'll give you an example. I was on a deal and the, the, the seller's attorney had a very, he was always accusing everyone of wrongdoing or something crazy. We're like, no, we're just, we're trying to transact. And when I did some research on that attorney, I found out that the seller was actually using an attorney with a strong litigation background. So he approached the entire transaction with a litigation mindset. Either we're accusing you of something or we're defending against something versus a transaction type mentality where it's like, okay, we've we've come across this problem. How are we going to solve it? Here's what we recommend. It might work for us, may not work for you, but if it doesn't work for you, why not? Tell us, you know, and learning to to recognize those different personality types without getting emotional or pissed off or anything like that. You just, you can't learn that sort of emotional maturity from reading a book. It just comes from experience, I think. Santana, Cavell brings up a really interesting question. Like how much of real estate is a people business versus a mathematical business? Like what do you end up really leaning on more when you're making these deals? I agree with everything that Cavell said. And I think, you know, my response is really the relationship building, understanding who the key players are on your team. And so remote managing all of my properties, I understand like the most important person for my Airbnb is my cleaner. I am constantly like touching base with her, like, have a wonderful day. I appreciate you so much (laughs) because they, they literally make or break your business. And same thing with your contractors, your electricians, your lawn guys. And of course you want to build a relationship with your tenants as well, but a hundred percent that relationship building. I think a lot of people come into the landlording business and just don't even think about all of the sort of emotional aspects of it, not relationship building. So it's so important to understand who your key stakeholders are in the rental business uh, or Airbnb, whichever um, aspect you do, but just showing that appreciation, even in small, different ways. I'll randomly text my contractor, like, listen, I know it's been hard this week, but I really appreciate you. And it's those small things, I think that go a long way in understanding you from investor one to investor two. And so that that's really my biggest piece of advice there. Ming, I've noticed that people in the FIRE community like to look at real estate is as passive income. And yet when I'm listening to all of you talk, this doesn't sound really passive to me. Do you consider real estate investing passive? It depends on the week. If you're asking me about like <laughs> last week, I... 
definitely dumped like more hours into this even than the real job. But like a majority of the time, I'll say like on average, even with my portfolio, I work about like one to two hours. The way how you define passive could be different, right? Passive like to me is I don't have to listen to a schedule. I don't have to listen to a boss. So even though I do input work, but I can control the amount of work and I control the nature of the work. And that to me, it meant freedom. So it doesn't necessarily to be like, this is a completely passive. I'm not looking at it at all. And like, I'm just laying in bed every day. That's to me, like, that's not like the passive I'm looking for. Like more important than passive is the freedom, like what it brought it to me. Cavell, basically on the same idea, Anonymous writes us on Slido, real estate even done passively is more work than the stock market annual rebalancing. If you won the lottery, would you consider selling your real estate? If I won the lottery, depends on how much money we're talking about now, right? <laughs> so I, I, I can't imagine myself completely, completely just not doing anything with my life. I, I have the type of personality where I I need to feel like I'm accomplishing something and I have to see the fruits of my, my work, which, which doesn't necessarily mean manual. Like I need to be thinking and solving problems and overcoming challenges. So I think if I were to sell my real estate, that means I would be transitioning into probably something bigger, something international, but I, I need to be doing something with myself. So winning the lottery and selling my properties only means that I'm, I'm transitioning into another level of play, right? I'm, I'm getting into a bigger sandbox with some heavy hitters and trying to learn from them and challenge myself. I just want to jump in on this. It's like, even though I know this is a real estate panel, but like, I want to mention like, for me, like I'm not all in on real estate either. Like I do agree, like, you know, like a four, you, you have to kind of like a balance your portfolio in my opinion. So like, I do have probably like a half of my asset in real estate that are generating steady income. And I do have the other half ish, like in the index of fund. It's just for real estate because you do build up your cash flow way faster. So if you want to like achieve your financial independence, it's a faster way, right? Versus like the 4% of your 3 million portfolio to get you quit your job, like to be financial independent, you could have like a much less of a money. And then so for me, the way how I have been working is I always had a side business, like a side hustle. And that was a generating active income. And I use that. And whenever that has anything coming into my back account, immediately divide by two. One is for the down payment, saving up for the next house. And when the other half is all in into like an index fund and I'm not looking at it. So like that kind of balance actually does make sense like to me a little bit more, especially at my age. And to me, like if I do like earn some lottery ticket whatsoever, I'm probably going to donate like most of them. And the same as Cavell, like financial independence is a milestone. It's not a destiny, right? Like you, after financial independence, you don't, you don't have to retire early. I'm 29. I, if I retire today, what am I doing with like my life? So that's what happened to me. Like a six month into my retirement, I was so bored. So I was bored. so into that like 80 hours work week, 60 to 80 hours work week. And I don't know what to do with myself anymore. And that's when I realized there's just financial independence. It's a way, it's a milestone you want to achieve. And after you achieve that, there's more things into your life. And, and it gave you the freedom to achieve whatever you want to do at that point. And that's what I think is the beauty of it. Let's take a quick break. 
You're listening to Cavell Taylor, Santana Perez, and Ming Mercer recorded live on the Real Estate Rockstar panel at Camp Mustache in April 2021. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Here at Earn and Invest, we love to talk about personal finance and financial independence, but where can you go to find the role of real estate in your financial independence journey? Well, I send people over to Coach Carson. Chad Carson is the host and creator of the Real Estate and Financial Independence podcast where he teaches you about real estate in two distinct ways. One is he has episodes where he, as the expert, tells you all the tips and tricks of this asset class. The other is he has guests on proof of concept, real-life examples of how you can use real estate to reach financial independence. It's an amazing podcast. Check him out at CoachCarson.com. Again, that's CoachCarson.com, the Real Estate and Financial Independence podcast with Coach Carson. Take a listen. You don't want to miss it. Let me reintroduce the panel. Cavell, Santana, and Ming are real estate rock stars, and we recorded them live at Camp Mustache in April of 2021. Santana, a lot of this begs the question, is real estate a good path to financial independence? And I'm going to add on to that a question from Slido from Alma. When do you know when you have enough real estate? You know, that's, that's a difficult question. I think it's clearly defining your goals around like what you want in a monthly income. And so it's hard to look at it from an annual basis because real estate kind of varies, especially when you have different sort of properties that you're looking at. So Airbnb versus long-term versus commercial versus, you know, your straight residential but it's definitely a part of my plan for financial independence, especially retiring early. I do intend to go almost 100% full real estate within the next, I would say, 12 to 18 months, possibly sooner. I think what you have from real estate is really important because not only do you have the appreciation in most markets over time, you also have that monthly cash flow, which is a dividend. And then once you are a full-time real estate professional, you have all sorts of other deductions from a tax purpose that you can take as well. So it, it for me, has been a huge part of financial independence, especially that income stream. For most people uh, that are not in real estate today, it might not make sense. A lot of people are just fine with index investing, which is what I do as well. 
but you just have to clearly identify what your goals are and what you want to venture into. Kavel, let's pivot. I mean, this is a different atmosphere than it was five years ago, 10 years ago. COVID, the pandemic, it's changed everything. Anonymous ass on Slido. Did you ever get anxious, nervous about the amount of debt that you were taking on? If so, how do you manage through it? And I think it's important to look at this under this kind of lens of the pandemic because we didn't expect life to be the way it, it has become. How do you manage that kind of fear and leveraging? I have a very high tolerance for risk. So I I didn't have any fear. I was nervous for a few months. Every month I was like, am I going to get all my rent? Knock on wood. I have 100% occupancy still and 100% collection. So every month I got a little bit nervous as the at first roll around, but I kept in touch with my tenants and I'm not afraid of taking on debt. I'm a deal right now and I'm taking on more investors. I, I think the important part of understanding debt and, and real estate is that you're to me, it's it's the best debt in the world because it, it allows you to acquire an income-producing asset with little money out of your own pocket. And then you use money from your rental income to increase your equity position in the asset, which continues to, to pay you dividends. And it's it's a beautiful thing. So I'm not afraid of it. Now, would I go and buy in a market where there's high unemployment? No, you have to pay really, really close attention to to micro markets and sub markets in an area that you're looking to acquire an asset. Some markets are doing much better than others in the United States. You're seeing incredibly incredible job growth still. So, you know, I am not afraid of debt. I was not afraid at all about the debt that I had on my balance sheet during COVID. And I just made sure that I was in a position to pay the rent not pay the rent, pay my mortgage every month. And if if a tenant, you know, I had a couple of vacancies that I had to fill in the middle of COVID. And again, I got very lucky. I'm in a market that's, there's very high demand. It, it's New York, right? Everybody's like, oh my God, New York is falling apart. But it, I own my, my, that's where my wealth is. It's in New York. And I did not have this problem that you're hearing on the news, like, oh, everybody's leaving. Yeah, people are leaving, but they're also, there's a lot of people that are staying. So, and the people that are staying are looking for a good deal. So I offered the good deal to the people. I got a lease and then I'm like, I'm set for 12 months. So, you know, you have to really assess your tolerance for risk and mine is very high. So I was never very nervous. I'd like to offer the opposite view. (laughs) (laughs) I actually am risk averse, extremely. I have a credit risk background, financial risk, and everything is all about minimizing risk. And so During COVID, I actually had the majority of my rental portfolio as Airbnb. A lot of that was in a college SEC market as well. And so what I had to do is I was on my phone just grinding, trying to find renters to take over some of my Airbnb portfolio, campus shutdown, graduation shutdown, big events, big summer camps, big sports camps, everything shut down. And then also in my beach markets, we actually, our town actually shut down the beaches, shut down hotels, shut down short-term rentals. It was insane, absolutely insane. And so anything below 30 days was not allowed. And so I was literally on Zillow, on Realtor, on Facebook, on 
every single rental site that I could find in every single one of my markets. And luckily, I was able to find, you know, 30 to 60 to 90 day tenants, securing deposits, securing leases. And this was in four different cities in Texas. And I was also working and in my full-time job, we are actually going through. So COVID, when COVID hit, we dealt with commercial clients. So restaurants, hotels, all of these companies that were potentially going to bankruptcy. So it was a crazy time. But here we are now, 12 months later, everything has been great. I got, you know, what I needed to do so that there's kind of those ebbs and flows where it's just chaos. And this time last year was chaos, but I didn't lose any money. I never felt like, oh my God, I don't know what's going to happen. And I did actually have an attendant that stopped paying. And so I had to employ some very unique techniques because our, our town had shut down. She stopped paying in March. Our town didn't actually reopen our course into July. I was thankful or I was versatile enough to employ a certain strategy where I you know, kept her deposits, got her out by the end of um, April, got somebody in early May. And so you're going to have to understand that there's definitely risk involved, especially in different strategies, but you're going to have to be versatile to get through it. So Ming, Kevin Estes on Slido asks a related and important question, is now a good time to invest in real estate? He points out that we have very low interest rates. On the other hand, prices are higher than they were during the Great Recession. So is this a good time to jump in? I get this question a lot from like family, friends, or just the people knowing like my success stories with real estate. A lot of people are just like, oh, should this right now to be a good time to invest? My answer to them is always like, it's not depends on the time. It depends on the deal. So to me, there always be a good time to invest. Yeah, we all wish we had all the money back in like 2012 when the market crashed. I was only 20. I have no money. I couldn't buy anything. It passed. I didn't get my money until like a 2014. That's when I first got my first real estate. But so what, you know, like right now the market is definitely worse off than previously. Well, I see a lot of people, they do like an overanalyzation. And so like, they always kind of like a cold feet and trying to jump in. So I had people ask me this question, like, Hey, like a real estate market is going really hot. Like, should we invest? And that was back in 2017. So if you, right now we're in 2021, if you look back in 2017, if you would have invested, you already appreciate a ton. So it's really like, it depends on the deal. And then there's still good deals out there. It wasn't back like once when I was start looking at the market in 2014, 2013, interest were low, like housing price were low. They're literally like a tens, like a thousand, not thousands, but like they're probably like out of 10 houses you have to pick which one is the best deal out of the 10 instead of like, oh, I don't have enough money like to invest all 10 of them trying to pick one. Right now, it's kind of like, okay, there's like one deal. I need to get my hand on it and I need to be creative. It's just like, that's the feeling I have but right now. Is it good? It really depends on like what market and the macro market, like Val said, like you are in and what kind of deal you're looking for. So Cavell, as Ming is talking about, you know, markets come and go and we're looking for specific deals, but it also kind of begs this question of how much of your financial independence plan should be real estate oriented versus different asset classes. So I'd like to actually go through all three of you, starting with Cavell, what percent of your financial independence asset allocation is to real estate versus stocks versus businesses and other, if you're willing to answer that. Yeah, I would say most of it, 95% of it is 
is real estate and maybe one to 5% is in the stock market. I, I've just, I mean, I've, I've seen some great gains in the stock market, but it's, it's the stock market's just not as exciting as real estate. And I'm not seeing the dividend payouts in from the stock market or investing in companies or startups or the tech that I'm seeing from real estate. I mean, my my goal when I started working was, you know, I want to have a million dollars and earn six figures. And I was able to easily do that with real estate, right? So I'm seeing cash flow, a six-figure cash flow, almost seven-figure net worth. And now my goal is seven-figure seven cash flow and eight-figure net worth. And I think I can do that with real estate. So of course, that's where I'm going to plant all of my seeds. Santana, same question. I mean, I hear from real estate investors all the time that they tend to go all in, right? 90, 95%, 100% in real estate. How do you break down your own portfolio? So currently I'm about 60, 40, but I did just liquidate my brokerage account. I liquidated sometime earlier this year to essentially go 100% into real estate. So prior to that, I was more like 70% stock, 30% real estate. So my ideal balance will be just alternating and flipping it. So 30% stock market, 70% real estate. For me, I think there's always deals out there. You just have to have enough capital and you have to have enough creative financing. And so there's just too many opportunities on the real estate side to not go 100% right now. Ming, do you agree? How What's your asset allocation right now and how much is devoted to real estate? I, very different, I felt. So so you guys, so one is really risk averse. So one is really like prone to risk, right? Like I am, I take calculated risk. And so to me, my calculated risk is I have about like a 45% in real estate 45% in index fund, like a Vanguard or VTSAX, like not even touching it. And then I have about the rest of it, like a half of it, I actually put in notes. And then the rest of that, I call it like a play money. Like me and my husband share that part of the money. And we just put in Robinhood, we'll kind of have this competition to see like, oh, who gets more money at the end of the year. It's very romantic, a couple activity. So like for that, like I, I consider that kind of like a dump money. I do buy like a cryptocurrencies and I do buy like a Tesla and VDA, all that kind of stuff. But I consider that money no exist. But right now, like I'm actually trying to decrease my real estate from 45% to even lower. So I can actually focus on my new, like the fashion brand that I'm working on right now, and also the nonprofit I'm building. The real estate, like before, I was trying to hold it to 45%, but as the two ladies said, it did grow faster than the index of fund. So I do need to kind of like, you liquidated a stock brokerage account, right? I liquidated one of my real estate properties so I can invest in somewhere else. Well, I want to move to something more difficult and help set expectations here a little bit. We have three experts here. You are women, women of color, women who have a background of immigration. Is it difficult doing real estate when you're not the typical Caucasian male? I wouldn't call it difficult, but I would say that it does come with challenges that I didn't anticipate or didn't realize that I would be confronted with. 
And I, I think it being the daughter, like the firstborn daughter of immigrant parents, a woman of color, I've had experiences where, you know, all of us do it. We code switch. For those that don't know what code switching is, it means that you may speak in a way that doesn't reflect your culture or background and reflects more the typical white male, white female sound or do things with your name so that you can get someone's attention. Like, you you know, there are all these tricks that have to be employed to get what you want. I would, I don't know if they're tricks, but it's just a navigation method, I would say. I'm going to give you an example of something that happened to me once. And um, I was applying for a mortgage for a property. I think it was a refinance. And back then, you know, you could submit everything, do everything via email. There were no portals. And then the mortgage broker, you have to sign the papers with, you know, pen. And the mortgage broker offered to bring the packet to my home. And I said, sure, I would love that. I was very thrilled that he was willing to offer that service for me. And he rang my doorbell. And when I opened the door, he went, I thought you were a blonde. Like he had no idea what he was going to encounter. And at the time I had like dreadlocks and they were purple. So it might've been a bit of a shock, but for that reaction, I could tell that he was not expecting a woman of color to, to be on the other side of that door because my balance sheet was really strong. You know, it's like he saw wealth, he saw cash flow, and he was expecting and a, and a high, high um, credit score. And he was expecting something. So, you know, you got, you, you let it roll off and then you move on to the next thing, you know, but it's, it's definitely something that comes with challenges that you have to learn to overcome and work through. Santana, have you experienced similar challenges? Uh, I think it's definitely a uh, interesting time to be a woman of color in the real estate space, but I definitely have experienced some issues being like one being single, uh, one being a Latina. One of the most prominent instances that I remember is I was over at my triplex and I was kind of just like checking on things and I had been calling different people to come by and essentially give me quotes on different things. And so I remember one of the electricians had actually came to my property and was like, oh, so do you know when the owner's going to be here? He's like, when are you going to be done cleaning? And so he assumed that I was the cleaner or the housekeeper for the property. And then one, not assuming that I was the owner. And so immediately I just kind of went through the whole spill with him, right? Like one, two minutes. I was like, that, that, that just those types of assumptions that people have will, I think, be a negative business relationship ultimately. And so there's small things that, that you have to deal with. And I remember one time I also submitted like a full price offer and I actually don't try and use my name anymore. My last name is Perez. And so we submitted a full price, a little bit over asking, and they didn't even review it they ended up pulling the listing and then they listed it after. And so we had been trying to get that property for some time. And so the only thing that really made sense to me was having that ethnic name and it was in a small town. And, but I I feel like these are probably things that happen quite a bit. And so that that's might be a little bit different than somebody else with, you know, a non-ethnic name or non-Latin background, but yeah different, a little bit different. 
We are getting so many great Slido questions. I'm going to use the last 15 minutes to start addressing those. Santana Perez also will be slipping off the call in a few minutes. So we want to thank her for being on and she probably will quietly slip off when she's ready. Ming, I want to go to you. Brian asks, what separates those with great success stories in real estate investing from those that end up washing out? And I guess specifically, are there people who shouldn't go into real estate, like certain personality traits, et cetera? Real estate, like for me, like I I felt like I was on the edge of just a really fail at really big. It's basically what Cavell said that before, like you need to understand a business is a business. And I've seen a lot of people like because there's a human like involved in real estate, like at the beginning, I was almost like a crying every single day. I was pregnant and the tenant stopped paying and she was, the tenant was actually end up like bullying me in a way where it's just like making me feel bad asking for rent from her, that type of thing. And and I think like Alma actually the the one of the person who organizes the event, she said like she had such a soft heart and then when the tenant didn't pay and she wouldn't even pursue anything. So you didn't run the business as a business, right? You run it almost as a charity. And that definitely almost got me out of the business and failed harshly. The second part is just like you what we said before in the previous question, this is not a completely passive investment unless you actually have a great team, right? You do have a property manager to manage it for you. And like the manager, the property manager can be like a hundred percent, like a hands off and somewhere really trustable. Like if you run it that way, there's certain costs to it as well, right? You wouldn't build equity or your cash flow as fast as, as if you didn't use a property manager. So like, have your expectation right and also like do some work. It's not going to be a full-time W-2 job, but do expect to do some work and understand this is a business and treat it as a business. I think people will do fine. Let's take another break. You're listening to Cavell Taylor, Santana Perez, and Ming Mercer recorded live on the Real Estate Rockstar panel at Camp Mustache in April 2021. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. Have you all been enjoying the episodes we've been having every Monday and Thursday? Well, if so, there's a place where you can go to continue the conversation 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's right. It's our Facebook group. Go to earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. There you can hang out with community members and discuss everything that's going on in the world, whether it's personal finance, the economy, you name it, we talk about it there. Go to earnandinvest.com slash Facebook and become a part of our community. Let me reintroduce the panel. Cavell, Santana, and Ming are real estate rock stars, and we recorded them live at Camp Mustache in April of 2021. Cavell, speaking of work, Kevin Estes writes on Slido, what are some of the worst experiences you've had with tenants? What about your best experiences with real estate investing? My worst experience with a tenant. Hmm. I think it's the, the, the tenants who, and again, it's like having the emotional maturity to learn how to deal with this, but there are some tenants that definitely come into the rental experience with a sense of entitlement. And they speak to me using a certain tone of voice that I don't think is 
I deserve. And when I say that, it's, it's, I don't know, I don't know how to explain it, but people can definitely speak to in a very disrespectful manner. So when that happens, yeah, I get, I'm like, how dare you? Where do you think you are? But I, I, like, I take a moment and I take a deep breath and I'm like, okay, I don't know why this person is talking to me this way, but I'm just going to respond in a very logical, rational, unemotional manner. And I, I, I take it there. And it's, it's happened only a couple times in my 20 years of 20, 20, 20 years of being a landlord. And then some of my best experiences are the great tenants. I have a lot of great tenants. I have more great experiences than I have negative ones there. I have one long-term tenant. She's been with me for 10 years and she's incredibly, she pays on time. And when she's got an issue and it's resolved, she sends a thank you note. Some, some of those little things, you know, people forget that landlords are also people. They have families, they, they work to, to make a, a home for people. And just because they're landlords, that doesn't mean that they're these greedy little sniveling, like slumlord types, you know, like we genuinely care about our properties and want to make it a, a nice place. So that doesn't mean, you know, and people have a tendency to treat us poorly. So when you have people that don't do that, don't complain and say, oh, the light in my fridge is out. Well, go get a bulb. You know, you'd be surprised at some of the things that that people want. But the best experiences are always when you're dealing with pleasant people. And then the worst experiences are when you're dealing with people who have sticks in places that sticks just don't belong. If you know what I mean? <laughs> Santana Anonymous asks, did you prior- prioritize cash flow markets over appreciation in your pursuit of financial independence? Why or why not? Yeah, I, I did prioritize cash flow different strategies for different people. So a lot of people will invest like for instance in Austin market, right? And they're cash flow negative on a monthly basis, but they're like, oh, but you know, in three to four years, I'm going to be able to sell it and make XYZ. I don't care about three to four years. I care about now. And so all of my deals have to meet the 1%, have to meet my certain cash flow metrics. And so appreciation has happened naturally just because the markets I'm in are appreciating on a slower basis. They're not like Seattle, Portland. I think Idaho is another one where real estate is just going crazy right now. Mine are a little bit more moderate and I'm okay with that. Ming, same question. Cash flow or appreciation, which do you think it's more important when you're thinking about financial independence? It depends on what stage of FI you're in. So at the very beginning, I definitely only care about cash flow because my goal to that point is trying to quit my W-2 job. Not necessarily quit my W-2 job. It's just that if I do get fired, I have a place to fall back on, right? So like cash flow to me is important. So like my goal at the beginning was like, okay, I have enough cash flow to pay my mortgages. So like even if I do lose my job, like I can still pay my house have a roof under me. And then you build up a little more. It's like, okay, now I can pay all my bills. Now I can pay all my groceries. Okay. Until like probably 2019, I realized, oh, I have enough cash flow that can pay like everything essentially. At that point, to me, at that point, it was like, how can I minimize my time actually spend on real estate investment, right? Instead of like investing all like the class C, class like a B minus like a neighborhood, like so a little bit ghetto neighborhood, but you can get greater cash flow. I start changing those properties into like a grade A, like 
better tenants, less turnover, like a minimum, like an investment, minimum, like a maintenance, minimum, my time, right? So like to me at that point, my time is actually more valuable than me because at the time I was having a W-2 job, I have a newborn and I have a toddler and I have a real estate investment. I also have my side business. So life was a plentiful, right? And after I quit my W-2 job, I have my time back. But now what I'm thinking about is asset, like my wealth preservation, right? So how can I maintain all my wealth? So now I'm looking more for like the market. I know there wouldn't be like the, the population are keep growing. So the housing are keep appreciating. This is the last year. And this year I start loading a lot of my properties from Cleveland, Ohio, to Atlanta, Georgia, because I do see this area actually grow better than the Midwest area. And cash flow to me was not a issue anymore. So it really depends on what stage you're in and what kind of life you're in. A mother who has a W-2 with two toddlers and a side business is very different than someone who as my current stage where I have enough nest egg even if I feel big, like I still have a soft cushion I could lay on like for a long time. So, so it, it really depends on the personal situation, I feel. Kevel, speak to what Ming is talking about here. Has your strategy changed as you've accumulated more wealth? Oh, absolutely. When I first got started, I didn't care about cash flow or appreciation. I just wanted to do a deal. And I would do the deal if I broke even. If, if, if everything broke even, I was like, I was going to do this deal because it, I was, it was just fun. And I was, Monopoly has always been one of my favorite board games. And it, it was, it was like playing Monopoly with real life. So at <laughs> first it was like, I just wanted to acquire properties. I loved the process. I loved doing it. It was fun, a fun thing to do part-time. Then it started changing and I was about, you know, I started getting the appreciation because I got into the market when, you know, the stock market had crashed and real estate was on its way up, you know, prior to 05. And I took advantage of the appreciation. That's how I was able to acquire more. Then it became about, about cash flow. And now I would say it's a really nice, healthy combination of both. I want to see an opportunity that's going to cash flow for me, like within 18 months, as well as for my investors. And I want some appreciation because that's going to allow me to refinance the deal. So I'm going to give you an example. Um, looking at a property right now, I'm in contract. It's a six unit building. It's 40 to 50% below market with respect to the rent and it needs a lot of renovation. So, you know, I get one product that's going to allow me to purchase the, the deal and do the renovations. We have some investors. We offer the investors a return on their money. That way, you know, you don't have to always come up with all the cash. And then, you know, we'll be looking for the property to appreciate once we've done the renovations, we refinance it, buy the investors out, and, you know, it increases my cash flow. And then I'm sitting on some, a building that's going to appreciate a little more because, you know, when we bought it, it wasn't worth much. And it's sort of on the fringe of a neighborhood that's currently being gentrified. So right now it's, it's a common, what I think is a healthy combination of both. It's still risky, but it's a combination. Ming, what Cavell is talking about is a current deal she's looking at. Anonymous asks, what is your process for choosing properties? Do you have a specific way you go about it? Right now, I'm like really lazy. So I can't, I don't, I don't know if this is good or not. 
So when I first came to Atlanta, I can like just offer some general advice. I spend a lot of time up front instead of the time like following. I don't know if this makes sense or not, right? But I spend a lot of time interviewing my realtors. I spend a lot of time interviewing all my contractors and my PMs and stuff like that. And then once I hire someone, I trust that person fully. And I only do like a periodic checks. So that's where I would like to spend my time. The same with tenant. I spend a lot of time like screening the tenant. So I spend less time like dealing with the headaches with the tenant, right? So my process is I interviewed probably like a 20, 30 realtors and I have my own processes and trying to like interviewing them. And we can talk about that like if someone's interested. But once I choose my realtor, she almost like just does everything for me. She was just like, okay, I find this deal. This is really good. I'm like, okay, I trust you. And can you go look at it? Fine. And it's just like, this deal is a good deal. And do you want to look at it? I'm like, okay, whatever. Just submit an offer. I will go look at a house once my offer is accepted. And because you're in the conversation and during the inspection time was the first time I actually look at a house. So I just purchased your house last week. One of the house, I didn't know the address before the offer was binding. I trust my realtor to that point. And so I don't know if this is like a good or not, like a for a newbie investor. But as as of right now, like a real estate is, I want it to be as passive as possible. So like, this is what my current way of trying to screening a deal. Cavell, we're getting down to our time for two last questions. This one comes from Anonymous. If you're 21 right now, what advice would you say to your 21-year-old self related to real estate investing in 2021? I would say, Cavell, do not go to that party tonight. (laughs) 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 It's going to knock you out all weekend long. And um, I would tell myself to start like looking at deals and learning how to run the numbers and run the numbers. And if I found a good deal, I would pursue it. And if I didn't have all the money, I would I would raise that money with friends, family, anyone who would listen to me. I would try to pull all that deposit money together. And when I was 21, I'm trying to remember where I was living, but I would have done the same thing I, all over again, for example, which was everybody calls it house hacking now, but I would yeah. buy, I would try to get like a multifamily building, live in one unit, rent out the rest. Sorry, I want to jump in on this. Like if I would do this all over again, like I'm not too far away from 21, but I my advice to anyone who is in their 20s, your time is the most valuable asset you have. You are really poor right now. Like right now, if you think about like a 30K, 50K, 80K, it's a huge amount of money. 10 years from now on, you probably think this is like a nothing. But make sure you actually invest in yourself. Like you're in the prime age to actually learn and try to grow your skills. Either that's like a paying like a couple thousand dollars of tuition to get the new skill sets. So you could get a raise of like a 30 grand or something. That is actually the better investment than trying to do whatsoever, right? Because growing yourself is actually something like you shouldn't forget at your 20. And you will regret it. Like your brain is just not as functioning as fast. I couldn't just uh, (laughs) functioning on like a four hour sleep anymore, even though I'm like in my early thirties. So like that, like spend the time to actually invest yourself and know all the peoples before you're like settled down with a family, trying to network, get as much knowledge as possible. Like don't forget to invest in yourself. Like, I think that's really important. So we are running out of time, but Ming, last question, and I'll throw it over to Cavell after that. What do you think is the best online resource for someone who knows nothing about real estate right now? And how can people get in touch with you if they want to ask more questions? 
I would say bigger pockets is definitely number one. And if you have the money, like I'll definitely get the membership. I'm not related to bigger pockets in any way, shape, or form, except that I'm actually a member there as well. And the second thing is if you just search on Facebook, uh, a lot of people they probably know this event through Facebook. Tons of Facebook groups, like that is definitely important. And the third thing is YouTube's, and but YouTube's like sometimes you get in the hang of like I listen to too much like the YouTubers talking and other people's success stories, but it doesn't get you motivated to actually do something. So like I would rank that like as the last thing, but definitely a lot of bigger pockets and a lot of like a Facebook people and to actually try to know the people to network with real people, find your mentor, find your anchor. And Cavell, online resources, if there's one specific that you'd recommend people start at. I'm a huge podcast fan. So I listen to, I still listen to real estate podcasts. And I'm going to also agree with Ming and say that Bigger Pockets is an incredible resource if you're a newbie. And the second biggest resource for you online is going to be any kind of meetup group or like if there's a, a multifamily group that you can join or whatever area of real estate that you want to get involved with, if there's any mastermind groups. And if you can't find one, start one yourself with other people. You might all be newbies. But if you're in a group with people, someone's a newbie, but they really want to be a broker, someone else is a newbie, maybe they're an attorney and someone's a a CPA, like just try to connect with people by joining other groups online. This has been Camp Mustache Virtual 2021, the Real Estate and Financial Independence panel. I wanted to thank Ming, Cavell, and Santana. That's a wrap. always reminds me of my brother he loved this band (laughs) we'd sing it along like all the time (laughs) awesome and it's just such a weird song like yeah it's happy though (laughs) (laughs) anyone want to do any dance moves (laughs) it's your chance to be famous We could do that thing like at the ball game where we like um, uh, take someone from the audience, uh, let them turn their video on and let and, them dance for and 10 dance seconds. Music. Yeah, that's yeah. what you should do. feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. (laughs) Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. 